Hello, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Cote St. Luke Public Library. I hope you're well. Today I'm going to conclude my two-part talk on the history of the MGM musical. By MGM, of course, I mean Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, which was the biggest and most glamorous of the movie-making studios during the heyday of classic Hollywood. Now, if you're interested in listening to part one of this two-part series, where I talk about the rise and development of the MGM musical from the late 1920s to, arguably there, apotheosis in the Vincent Minnelli-directed Judy Garland starring Meet Me in St. Louis in 1944, you can find it on the city's SoundCloud page, listed as episode number 173, 173. And of course, all of the films under discussion here, both in part one and part two today, can be reserved as DVDs from the Cote St. Luke Public Library. I didn't speak about him much in part one, but Arthur Freed is probably the single most important figure in this story, because Freed headed MGM's main musical production unit. He didn't sing, dance, act, direct, or compose, though he was a lyricist by trade. Freed's old songs were, in fact, the basis for what would become Singing in the Rain, the movie. And after proving himself as an uncredited associate producer of The Wizard of Oz in 1939, Freed would come to supervise more than 40 musicals over the next 20 years, really up to Bells Are Ringing in 1960 arguably the last of the great MGM musicals. Studio chief Louis B. Mayer gave Freed an unusual degree of creative freedom. And with that freedom, he assembled a dazzling lineup of creative talent, including Gene Kelly, Sid Charisse, Stanley Donan, Fred Astaire, Betty Comden, Adolph Green, Robert Alton, and Alan J. Lerner. While to this day it's hard to determine Freed's exact contributions to each of the musicals that he is credited with producing, we can say with some certainty that his movies and his Freed unit at MGM are virtually beyond compare. Now, Arthur Freed never made any great claims for himself, but he did have an unerring eye for seeing the creativity and talent in others. And he gave his artists the freedom to take chances in his movies during an era where most movies were made as if by a studio committee. As he explained himself, and I quote here, the members of the group who worked at MGM during my tenure were very serious about musicals. That is not to say we didn't make them to entertain and to lift the spirit, but we thought that to do this effectively, they had to be superbly crafted. And that meant the closest kind of collaboration among the choreographers, directors, producers, musicians, conductors, musical arrangers, designers, and costumers. Really, the list is endless. They were probably more assembled talents in this field than MGM than anywhere else at any other time.
End quote. Arthur Freed. Among those many talents were Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who got their start as writer-performers in 1930s New York cabaret and network radio, teaming with such people as actress Judy Holliday in a comedy act known as The Reviewers. They made their Broadway debut with On the Town in 1944, for which they wrote the book and lyrics with uh, music by composer Leonard Bernstein, of course, after which uh, Arthur Freed brought them to his unit at MGM, where they would write lyrics and original screenplays for such classics as Singing in the Rain in 1952 and The Bandwagon in 1953. Now, once MGM's musicals had really established themselves by, say, the early 1940s, the studio expanded to hire more professional orchestra musicians. And the result was the signature MGM sound heard in every musical from Meet Me in St. Louis onwards. A string section without peer, a killer horn section, and brilliant arrangers and orchestrators at the helm, all led by conductor Johnny Green. MGM's studio orchestra possessed a finesse like no other. One of the very few well-remembered MGM musicals that was not produced by the Arthur Freed unit, but rather by Joe Pasternak in this case, is the movie Anchors Away from 1945. It stars both Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra, about two sailors on shore leave who are living it up in Hollywood. It's a fine, breezy programmer featuring one especially spectacular scene that mixes live action with animation, and in which Kelly dances with the animated Jerry Mouse from the Tom and Jerry cartoons. It's truly wonderful stuff. Along with Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire are names that we closely associate with the MGM musical. But believe it or not, Kelly and Astaire only worked together once, in 1946, the Ziegfeld Follies, when they did a duet together um, called The Babbitt and the Bromide. It's a bit of an omnibus film, um, not a, 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 a strictly speaking story-based <laughs> movie. Rather, it features uh, vignettes and um, interludes and comedy skits of a kind. Um, but certainly, I think a song and dance men, both Kelly and Astaire, would have shared a mutual, if competitive, admiration throughout their careers. And that's really well demonstrated in that sequence from the Ziegfeld Follies. In a 1975 interview, at around the time of the That's Entertainment compilation films, Gene Kelly talked about how their interests and their strengths were miles apart. Really, I mean, in comparing himself with Fred Astaire. He said, and I quote here, I represent the proletariat, whereas Fred, he represents the aristocracy. And indeed, they did have very different styles. Whereas Astaire is often best characterized by his elegant ballroom dancing, Kelly, like Ann Miller, was far more athletic and even acrobatic I mean, Kelly had a lower center of gravity, right? He danced closer to the ground, much closer than Fred, 
And his tapping is far more aggressive. I mean, in watching his performances, he, he seems to be digging into the earth, whereas a stare seems to skim and float above it. The actress and their fellow dancer, Sid Charisse, once claimed that her husband could always tell whom she had been working with when she came home at night. If she didn't have a bruise, it was Fred. If she was black and blue, it was Jean, she said. Another thing I think that distinguishes Kelly from Astaire is that Gene Kelly's emotions in his performances practically drip from his pores. I mean, it's clear he wants and will do anything for audience approval. Whereas Astaire, especially in his MGM films, is always amiable, but often cool, quite cool, and a little aloof, really. Almost as though he's saddened that no one will ever be quite on his level as an artist. Where Astaire, of course, had made a string of great musicals with Ginger Rogers at RKO in the 1930s, Gene Kelly got his big break on screen, co-starring with Garland, Judy Garland, in MGM's For Me and My Gal in 1942. Where his good looks, characteristic smile, and it's almost impossible to imagine Gene Kelly not smiling. And, um, also, I want to say his, his, his quite uh, macho dance style made him an almost instant audience favorite. But MGM didn't quite know what they had on in their, you know, didn't quite know what they had in their hands. And so loaned him out to Columbia for Cover Girl in 1944, where he won such a claim that MGM refused to loan him out for any future musicals. And it was only then that the studio began to treat him like a major star. Both Gene Kelly and Judy Garland appeared together in some of MGM's best musicals, including The Pirate in 1948 and Summer Stock in 1950. And they certainly brought out the best in each other, though their on-screen chemistry was more often of a brother-sister variety than that of a romantic boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. But romance is very much at the center of The Pirate, the rather wonderful Vincent Minnelli-directed and Arthur Freed-produced film. It's probably best remembered for the song Be a Clown, and has Gene Kelly playing an actor who tries to win over the resistant Judy Garland by pretending to be the dashing buccaneer that her character idolizes. Gene Kelly had been rehearsing for Easter Parade that same year as The Pirate when he broke his ankle he called Fred Astaire, who was then in semi-retirement, to take his place. Arthur Freed happily agreed, and it was a decision that really kicked off the second half of Fred's career. This musical, Easter Parade, of course, also stars Judy Garland, who, in the romantic plot of the film, becomes Fred's vaudeville dance partner, and it's, it's set to mostly vintage songs by Irving Berlin. While Easter Parade is, of course, a wonderful film in its entirety, it is maybe best remembered for their hobo duet together, A Couple of Swells. But maybe the greatest joy of Easter Parade comes from watching Astaire, through the character he plays, of course, open up to Judy Garland, as if recognizing her as a rare peer. I mean, someone on his level as an artist. 
1949, Gene Kelly starred in and choreographed the screen version of On the Town, also featuring Frank Sinatra, Betty Garrett, Jules Munchen, Ann Miller, and Vera Ellen. But it was also the first of several films that he would co-direct with Stanley Donan, a former Broadway chorus dancer. Donan, Kelly, and producer Arthur Freed would create many more superb screen musicals in the years ahead, including Royal Wedding, Singing in the Rain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and It's Always Fair Weather. Anne Miller, who had starred with Kelly, among others, in On the Town, was a fantastically leggy and charismatic brunette dance prodigy with Cherokee ancestors that might be at it. Her publicist claimed that she could tap her feet 500 times a minute. But whether that's true or not, Miller could definitely dance and sing too, even if she was no great actor, which made her hard to position for conventional pictures. Her career had really gone nowhere much at RKO and Columbia before she finally found her form at MGM, where she was frequently highlighted in set-piece solo dance sequences in such films as Small Town Girl and Kiss Me Kate, both from 1953. Ann Miller was given the freedom to shimmy and shammy and tap to her heart's delight, and always in glamorous outfits, with the camera trained only on her. In many ways, she was every bit as talented as Astaire, um, Kelly, or Garland, but um, uh, of course never achieved the, um, the great success that, that they did. Now, like all of these performers, Miller worked very hard to make everything look so effortless. I mean, that's the key word, right? When we think of MGM musicals, how effortless and full of grace everything appears. But, of course, there was a lot of hard work that went into creating that appearance. Um, a lot of time. And Miller later said that she sometimes, and I quote here, had to pour blood from her high heels after all the relentless takes in creating that appearance of effortlessness. The magic of the movies, huh? As I noted earlier, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers had starred in several classic musicals in the 1930s for the studio RKO. But their reunion movie, after 10 years apart, came with the Barclays of Broadway in 1949, which they made for Arthur Freed at MGM. It's the only movie that they made together that was filmed in color. And it was also the only one that had them married from the very start of the film, which was a nice change of pace from those 30s movies, as if acknowledging a certain maturity that had grown in those years apart. He was 50 at the time. She was 38. Maybe the highlight of the film, the, Bar the Barclays of Broadway, is the... Bouncing the Blues dance number, which I, which I enjoy especially for the, the fact that Ginger is more casual, letting her hair down. And she's also wearing slacks, uh, which is also a nice change of pace. 
And their practiced, highly practiced, I'm sure, casual look is, is, is truly great in this sequence. And, and just watching her face is, um, is a joy, a joy to behold. She just looks so happy to be there. Nevertheless, and having said all that, you may not have known that Judy Garland, in fact, had originally been set to co-star with Astaire in the Barclays of Broadway. So it, it was not originally intended to be a reunion film at all. But after suffering a nervous breakdown, Garland was uh, unable to commit to the project. So, uh, in fact, was replaced by Ginger Rogers. Another favorite musical from this period is the late 1940s Neptune's Daughter. And my favorite musical from this period, of course, I mean favorite MGM musical. And uh, Neptune's Daughter, as you may recall, stars both Esther Williams and Ricardo Montalban, as well as Red Skeleton, Red Skelton, excuse me, and Betty Garrett in support. Most memorable, I think, is the, is the, uh, the truly wonderful Baby It's Cold Outside uh, song sequence where Esther clearly wants to say yes to Ricardo, but is uh, a little too apprehensive to do so, with uh, Ricardo simply trying to persuade her to throw caution to the wind. But things, um, things were, were changing for MGM by the end of the 1940s, as they were for all of Hollywood, in fact. Audiences uh, were beginning to drift away after the war, um, especially with the advent of television in the, uh, the early years of the 1950s. And so the studio, like all the other Hollywood studios at this time, found itself with uh, increasingly high overhead expenses and um, a profit margin that was uh, signif significantly decreased from what it had been just a few years earlier. So with that in mind, uh, word came from MGM corporate headquarters in New York, and many people don't realize it, but Hollywood, um, um, during these years, and I suppose even today, has always been governed by, um, by, um, by, by headquarters in New York. It's always been overseen by... Um, um, board members in New York City. Um, so, in fact, when we think of MGM, we may think of Louis B. Mayer as being the head of MGM, but in fact, Louis B. Mayer was merely um, the studio chief in Hollywood, despite the fact, of course, that the second M in MGM represents Mayer, so the, uh, the studio <laughs> is in part named after him. Nevertheless, it did not stop him from being fired by New York executive Nicholas Shank, who um, was really looking for what he called a new Irving Thalberg, that is, someone who could maintain quality in, in, in MGM filmmaking while cutting the costs in, in producing movies. So MGM studio chief L.B. Mayer was, uh, was let go and instead... Dori Shari, a writer and producer who had achieved great success in running RKO, was um, brought in to um, supervise things in Hollywood. Um, now, you might think that MGM musicals would have gone into decline at about this time, but 
that was not the case. And in fact, I would argue they only got better. And the next four or five years, um, I really is, I think, the, the halcyon period for classic Hollywood, uh, classic MGM films, classic MGM musicals in particular, including Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, An American in Paris, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and perhaps most especially to my eyes and ears, uh, Singing in the Rain, and my favorite, The Bandwagon. But they, generally speaking, did not make as much money as musicals had in the 1940s and even in the 1930s. Which would eventually become a problem. So the 1950s really were both the brightest and the saddest years for the MGM musical in many ways. And despite the genre really reaching its creative apex at this time, especially in that three or four year period in the early 1950s, MGM, like all the other studios, had to fight against diminishing audiences. Uh, and to do that, what they did was they, they spent more money. They, they, they really lavished everything they had on these productions from, um, from the early 1950s, and which we really value today. But um, in the long run, it, it didn't really pay off financially for the studio. I mean, who cares? They're great films and we will always watch them. And, uh, but nevertheless, it, 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 it certainly impacted upon what type of movie MGM would make in the years ahead. And of course the great musicals that MGM made would not last forever. And in fact, would more or less come to an end by the end of the 1950s. I mean, television's impact had just been too great drawing just too many people away from the movie theaters, just as today in 2020. Streaming has really diminished um, theatrical attendance and almost completely finished them off, um, despite our pandemic times, which, of course, is really the final nail in the coffin, I would think. But that's another story. But how sharp was the change back then in the 1950s? I mean, just take this into account. In the mid-1940s, 90 million Americans went to the movies each week. And I'm sure that, you know, there was an equivalent um, ratio figure in Canada as well. But by the late 1950s, that figure of 90 million Americans had dwindled to 16 million Wow, that's quite a drop in attendance. And it didn't have anything to do with the quality of the films. You know, as I argue, they, in fact, the films only got better. It was strictly down to television, which also coincided with the U.S. federal courts forcing the studios to sell off their nationwide theater chains. They were declared a monopoly and had to, uh, had to break up for that reason. So shaken by these changes, a long, profitable studio system, with MGM really at the top of the tree, really fell apart with amazing speed. And that's one of the things that eventually led to the demise of the movie musical. But that fact 
that impact was not immediately apparent and certainly not felt in these great MGM musicals of the early 50s. In fact, they were better than ever. Summer Stock in 1950 remains a definite MGM classic, co-directed by co-star Gene Kelly with, um, with uh, Stanley Donen and featuring an original story by Benny Comden and Adolph Green with a screenplay using songs from Arthur Freed himself and his songwriting partner, Herb Brown. It's, it's, uh, it's a great film. And of course, um, it was also Judy Garland's last film for MGM. Um, of course, I'm sure you know Garland was a deeply troubled figure and her frequent illnesses and delays were really wrecking havoc with, you know, tightly plotted schedules and production budgets. So the studio executives, many of the same ones who had worked her so hard as a child actor, um, you know, in the 1930s, they now labeled her as unreliable and, in effect, uh, fired her. Meanwhile, Gene Kelly's screen version of On the Town had been such a success that Arthur Freed encouraged him to develop a project that would result in one of the greatest film musicals of all time, An American in Paris in 1951. Kelly plays an ex-GI and artist named Jerry Mulligan, but more importantly, An American in Paris features, I think, the most ambitious and visually ravishing ballet sequence ever filmed in Hollywood, which at 17 minutes took more than two months to rehearse and film. And the overall result is one of the most deliriously romantic of all musicals, and also one of the most inventive, with songs by George and Ira Gershwin, most notably, Our Love is Here to Stay. A great success in American in Paris would also go on to win the Best Picture Oscar, in addition to five other Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay for newcomer Alan J. Lerner, and even a special award for Gene Kelly's contribution to Dance on Screen. You know, and however perverse, I have to say that leaving aside the music and the dance, I could, I could watch these great Technicolor MGM musicals of the early 50s simply for the color alone. An American in Paris especially remains absolutely stunning. It's a real feast for the eyes and should remind us that many of the great MGM musicals are original works of art conceived almost I want to say almost exclusively in visual terms, but of course, the music is is crucial as well. Um, they're they they're really they're they're movies. They are of themselves all of a piece, quite filmic, rather than straight adaptations of Broadway successes. I mean, they're successes in their own rights, really. Their own unique creations. They're n- not just taking material and attempting to duplicate it in film terms, they're really shaping that material and creating something quite original, arresting, and to our eyes today, quite lasting and indeed classic in the very definition of the word. But that highly inventive and really quite expressive use of the Technicolor process in these MGM musicals of the early 1950s is, I think, one of the key ingredients that really brings about a very highly distinctive and even often abstract look. Really, And I think that helps to account for their 
artistic success, you know, even beyond the, uh, the songs and the dancing, is, which of course are still quite important. MGM musicals, they just never looked like film stage performances. I mean, directors like Vincent Minnelli and Stanley Donen were far too creative for that. They are completely unique creations in themselves. One of the most underrated of all MGM musicals from this period of the early 1950s, I think, has to be Royal Wedding from 1951, which had Fred Astaire literally dancing on the ceiling. You know, um, when in one sequence, in another sequence, he partners with a hat rack and makes it look effortless, of course. Um, while in yet another joins uh, Jane Powell for the knockout uh, duet, How Could You Believe Me? Which is, you know, another highly wonderful moment. Stanley Donen directed Royal Wedding with, um, you know, composer Burton Lane on board and lyricist Alan G. Lerner as well, who wrote the score. Uh, together. And Lerner also penned the story of what happens to a brother-sister dance team when the sister wants to marry a British nobleman, while the brother falls himself for a West End dancer, in this case played by Winston Churchill's real-life daughter, Sarah. Now, the plot of Royal Wedding was in fact inspired by Astaire's own real-life story way back in 1932, when his sister, Adele, had ended their long partnership in order to marry a British aristocrat. So here is art imitating life, or an example of it. But uh, definitely for me, the highlight of Royal Wedding has to be a stairs, your all the world to me, ceiling dance sequence, as if to suggest, this is what being in love makes you do, dance on the ceiling. It's truly wonderful stuff. Now, of course, for many, Singing in the Rain is the ultimate MGM musical, not only for what is probably the most famous solo song and dance signature number in Hollywood history. I mean, of course, I'm referring to Kelly's rain-soaked, blissful rendition of the title tune, um, which must be, when you think about it, one of the most familiar images in all of popular culture. Now, um, Singing in the Rain was directed by its star, Gene Kelly, in collaboration with Stanley Donen. It's one of their many... um, collaborations together in this in this in this period and um it's you know all of these movies are really an um are they're really examples of you know great teamwork uh here is singing in the rain again with a screenplay written by both betty comden and adolph green um and i'm sure you'll remember the story but it is inspired by the turbulent period in hollywood when Sound was just introduced in the late 1920s and um, really, you know, really, (coughs) excuse me, revolutionized what was going on in Hollywood. And many performers were not able to make the cut because some really didn't have the voice talent to um, survive in the sound era. And of course, the plot of Singing in the Rain involves a swashbuckling solid movie star played by Gene Kelly and much imitated in the... um, the um, the the recent Oscar-winning uh, movie, The Artist, I forget the actor's name, but he's clearly doing his best Gene Kelly impression in that movie. 
But uh, in the plot of The Thing in the Ring, Kelly is attempting to turn a silent flick into a song and dance spectacular with the assistance of, assistance of his best friend, Donald O'Connor, and soon-to-be girlfriend, uh, played by Debbie Reynolds, all despite the machinations of a vicious silent screen diva, played by a frequently screeching Gene Hagen. Now, Sid Charisse, certainly one of the most beautiful women ever in Hollywood history, has a memorable turn to uh, in Singing in the Rain during a wonderful sexy dance duet with Kelly. The, um, the Broadway rhythm ballet sequence is what I'm referring to, which led her to full-fledged stardom. And in this sequence, she is made up to look like the silent uh, screen star Paula Negri, kind of crossed with the silent screen actress Louise Brooks, um, she of the, uh, the bobbed, famously bobbed uh, hairdo, and uh, both, of course, uh, insolent beauties of the 1920s. And this sequence, the Broadway Rhythm Ballet, would be a huge influence, influence on the rather similar The Girl Hunt sequence in MGM's um, The Bandwagon, which would be made the following year with both Sid Charisse and Fred Astaire. And which reminds me that Kelly once said of Sid Charisse that, and I quote him here saying, she looked like a woman who liked to shock priests with wicked confessions. End quote. <laughs> um, now, after recovering from polio as a child, the long-legged beauty, Sid Charisse, pursued a career in dance. She appeared with a ballet russe before making her film debut for Arthur Freed and Ziegfeld Follies in 1946, and The Harvey Girls that same year, among other films to follow. Although one of Hollywood's greatest dance talents, certainly, Charisse was no singer and all of her screen singing was dubbed by others, which is a fact you may not be aware of. As I said, she co-starred with Fred Astaire in The Bandwagon in 1953. She also reteamed with Gene Kelly for the screen version of Brigadoon uh, two years later, and It's Always Fair Weather, also in 1955. She scored another hit with Astaire in the film version of Cole Porter's Silk Stockings in 1957 which is a musical remake of Ninochka, and, her, and it was also her last starring appearance in a musical film. Now, the bandwagon, is, the bandwagon is my own favorite MGM musical, and it features songs by Howard Dietz and Arthur Schwartz. Vincent Minnelli directed impeccably, I might add, with um, witty choreography contributed by Michael Kidd. And... Um, it includes, as I mentioned, that um, a truly wonderful, jazzy girl hunt ballet sequence with with Astaire, then 55, and Sid Charisse. I'm not sure, sure how old she was at the time, but I'm sure it was considerably younger. Um, and uh, it's, um, it's a delirious spoof on hard-boiled private eye stories. And, but it's not the only wonderful... Um, um, sequence in the bandwagon. There's also the lyrically stunning pas de deux, dancing in the dark a sequence in which is, uh, is set in an, a Hollywood reimagined Central Park in which Fred Astaire courts uh, Sid Charisse. Truly, truly, truly magical. Nanette Fabre, Oscar Levant, and British stage star Jack Buchanan also co-star in the bandwagon, but I mean, everyone here is really at the top of their game. 
Unfortunately, it did, like many of these movies in this period, only moderately well at the box office, um, however critically well-received it was. And um, that um, lack of sterling box office success really proved to be a sign of things to come. Not that there would not still be a few more great musicals um, that MGM would make in the remaining years of the 1950s, but they would become ever fewer as the years advanced. Still, as I said, there were there were others. Kiss Me Kate, as early as 1953, which I neglected to mention earlier, and which of course features Howard Keel and Catherine Grayson as the battling co-stars in a remarkably strong adaptation of Cole Porter's stage hit of the same title. Ann Miller is also in it, of course, and she gave, I guess, what I think it was widely regarded as her finest screen performance. Um... And also in the exceptional supporting cast is Bob Fosse and Carol Haney in numbers all choreographed by Bob Fosse himself. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers uh, from 1954 is another great MGM musical in this era, though not one produced by the Arthur Freed unit, but rather by Jack Cummins. Cummings. Uh, and the rare degree which I, by which I mentioned just how few of these were produced by Arthur Freed, I think is just a testament to how important he was as a producer at MGM. Nevertheless, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was directed by Stanley Donan, and it is a, uh, like all of these movies that I'm talking about, a true gem, and which features uh, both Jane Powell and Howard Keel. And, uh, but I think its fame really rests on several hearty ensemble dance sequences all choreographed by Michael Kidd. But nevertheless, as the studio system began falling apart in the late 50s, musicals in general, not just those of MGM, proved progressively less successful. They were expensive to produce, but and more importantly, audience tastes were just drifting away in many ways, um, not just in numbers at, the, at, uh, at movie theaters. Musical tastes were changing. One of MGM's last great musicals, It's Always Fair Weather, from 1955, kind of reflects the demise of the musical as it was actually happening. I mean, as cynical as Singing in the Rain is sentimental, It's Always Fair Weather applies some of the MGM factory's best techniques and innovative dance routines to a story about how romance and friendship fade over time. Even with a sunny ending, the movie's cloudiness is never completely dispelled. Hence the title, It's Always Fair Weather, which was, again, scripted by both Betty Comden and Adolph Green, um, who also wrote the show's lyrics with music, in this case, by Andre Previn. And uh, the movie's co-starred Gene Kelly, Dan Daly, Sid Charisse, Dolores Gray, and uh, even dancer-choreographer Michael Kidd in his first film acting role. Like so many of these movies I'm, I've been talking about, It's Always Fair Weather was well-received critically at the time, though it was not a great commercial success. And I think it's widely regarded today as the last of the truly great MGM musicals. At least that would correspond with my own opinion on the matter. 
Sadly, its directors, uh, Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly, uh, reportedly squabbled throughout the production. And as a result, never worked together again, which is appropriate in a way, given that It's Always Fair Weather is about World War II army buddies who keep their promise to meet up again in New York 10 years after the war and discover that they really can't get along any longer. The film was intended as a sequel of sorts to On the Town, but MGM nixed the idea of a full cast reunion. The movie itself has a, as I've been hinting at, a strikingly bitter tone, which is not at all typical of the MGM musical. Yet it features some of the most inspired song and dance routines of its era. Still, after 1955, MGM's production of musicals would taper off to just four titles in 1956, four more in 1957, another four in 1958, and then barely, barely one a year in 1959 and 1960. Um, though still a few of these are, are quite notable, like High Society, GG, uh, and Bells Are Ringing, really, in effect, the last of the MGM musicals. And by the end of the 1950s, MGM would allow its uh, famed Arthur Freed unit to slowly pass into history. So why did it all come to an end by the end of the decade? Well, MGM was no longer the same MGM by the mid-50s as it had been in preceding decades, meaning it just wasn't as powerful or as profitable. Its founding figures had either died or been retired, or <laughs> retired voluntarily. Judy Garland was long gone. Fred Astaire was nearly 60. Gene Kelly's best years were, I think, it's fair to say, behind him. The songwriters passed on, though of course their songs are, you know, they still live on. And maybe more importantly, musical tastes had changed. Just as the movie musical had been sustained by radio and sheet music, so now pop music broke out in the excitement of rock and roll, R&B, and soul. And a teenage audience that considered the old musicals to be you know, quaint and sentimental, sentimental relics of their parents' now bygone era. Okay, folks, I better wrap it up. Um, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Co St. Luke Librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this, the conclusion to my two part uh, brief, I tried to keep it brief, forgive me, history of the MGM musical. If you'd like to hear part one, you can find it on the City SoundCloud page, episode number 173. You can also find all of these MGM musicals that I've been discussing in the library, which you can reserve to watch as DVDs. Now, please join me next week for some recommendations of what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cosalug.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now.